Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. You've probably heard about the rise of the hybrid workplace, where employees have the option of working from the office as well as working some days from home. But have you heard of the traveling office? This week, the Globe and Mail featured a story about a Toronto tech startup that's providing a unique incentive to employees. For one month every quarter, Laser Technologies will set up shop at a new destination around the world. First up is Costa Rica. Uruguay is next. Laser employees will have the option to work from home or go along for the ride for part or the entire month. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I talked about the traveling office. Sean, what do you think? Would you want to work in this kind of traveling office? <laughs> well, Costa Rica during a Canadian winter doesn't sound too bad. Uh, I would just say this, Alicia. Well, there's a sort of you know interesting novelty here. Um, I do think in a, a world in which um, you know globalization is under threat, that there are kind of greater questions around the commitment on the part of different companies to their the countries in which they operate, to the communities in which they operate. I actually think the world is sort of moving in the opposite direction, um, that communities, that countries are going to be asking companies to make kind of deeper commitments um, to the places in which they have workers, in which they produce products and so on. So uh, in some ways, you know, notwithstanding the novelty, I wonder if this company isn't actually kind of reading the room wrong um, and that, you know, in the kind of post-pandemic reconfiguration of globalization, we'll see companies that are most successful are ones that are making deeper commitments to countries and communities. So to be clear, we have nothing against the traveling office. I actually think it's a pretty cool idea, but it sparked an interesting conversation about a much bigger issue, and that's the future of globalization in a post-pandemic world where we're seeing a growing push to reshore a range of industries. So after the show wrapped up, Sean and I dug a little deeper into this question about the role of globalization amid rising economic nationalism. In this world of labor shortages and the kind of competition for talent, we're going to see different companies doing different things. Um, and, you know, this particular example is interesting. You know, it appears that one of the ways in which it's hoping to uh, compete for talent and build loyalty with its team um, is to operate in different countries across the globe, um, you know, every quarter. Um, and, you know, that may work for this particular company. And, and um, you know, it, it's a, a kind of novel and interesting approach to the real problem of labor scarcity and, and, and building uh, loyalty and commitment on on the part of highly skilled workers, but it raises a kind of bigger question about the relationship between firms and the countries and communities in which they operate. 
you know, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic has exacerbated kind of growing questions about globalization in general, and in particular, the, you know, what different companies owe the places in which they have um, production, in which they earn profit, in which they find workers. And and it seems to me that it will be a competitive advantage going forward uh, for firms that um, establish stronger roots in place, that build deeper commitments to particular countries and and communities. And let me just make one final point on this. The recent announcement of kind of global agreement on global taxation, the expectation that um, companies will have to pay a minimum tax, uh, corporate tax rate, no matter which country they operate, is a sign, it seems to me, of this growing trend towards stronger commitments um, um, that companies are going to be expected to make to particular countries and communities. So I guess all this to say a pretty interesting and novel example here on the part of a Canadian firm, but part of this much bigger story about the relationship between companies um, and countries that I think will um, be uh, a big part of the post-pandemic kind of debate about globalization and, and all of the issues associated with it. Yeah, I think this this conversation about businesses uh, setting up shop and, and committing to the jurisdictions in which they manufacture or uh, operate in or, or are founded in was something that certainly was on the rise before the pandemic. And then the pandemic obviously kind of exacerbated this. So can you kind of take me through what the pandemic did to this conversation and how it kind of accelerated this idea? I think you can't discuss this issue without um, recognizing the kind of broader backdrop of the U.S.-China Um, economic and geopolitical rivalry. You know, it was common in the 1990s and early 2000s for firms to um, ship um, production to China because of its um, low cost uh, manufacturing capacity or to partner with Chinese um, companies or other institutions on different projects. Um, You know, think, for instance, of... um, you know, some U.S. tech firms that are increasingly facing scrutiny and criticism for their um, partnership uh, with different Chinese organizations. You know, in recent uh, weeks, our, our own government, the Canadian government, has announced a new set of rules around partnerships between Canadian universities and Chinese research organizations. Um, so I think that's a, a big part of it, that, you know, a, a recognition that, that different countries have different interests an increasing expectation that companies are going to have to make judgments about sort of which countries and which jurisdictions they want to be associated with. That was not the norm in the kind of globalized world of the 1990s and early 2000s. But I think the pandemic will place growing pressure on firms um, to sort of identify with different jurisdictions and in so doing, make deeper commitments to them. And I would just say this, Alicia, I would project or predict that those who don't will face kind of growing small p political challenges, particularly in instances when they then kind of come to national governments or domestic governments and ask for uh, different type of financial incentives or whatever. I think they're going to be there's going to be fine, fine that there's far less support, um, you know, for those types of things if they don't have kind of pre-existing commitments in, in, in deep roots in these different places. 
Yeah. Are you so? Do you expect to see policymakers kind of put on put the pressure on these companies to do more at home and commit more at home? Like, how what form does that take? Yeah, I think you will. I think it could be a subject to conditions of different um, public funding, for instance. You know, let me give you one example, Alicia. Israel has a policy in place presently that if a for if a, an Israeli firm that's received public R and D dollars in the past is purchased by a, a global firm, it has to pay back those public dollars to the state if the IP leaves Israel. That's just one example where I think policymakers are placing kind of are drawing lines around borders and expectations that um, different companies are making commitments to one's country um, or one's community. I, 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 that, I, that particular idea you just mentioned has found resonance in Canadian policy circles. And it's just one example, I think, um, of this kind of growing interest in trying to uh, encourage firms to, to, to build these uh, deeper local roots. And, uh, and, I, and I think as the U.S.-China rivalry um, deepens, I think there's going to be pressure on um, large U.S. firms like Google and Facebook and Apple and others um, to, you know, basically pick that they won't be able to depend on the kind of ongoing support of the U.S. government if they're going to continue to have large scale production in China and or um, continue to partner with, with the Chinese government on projects that that touch on issues of national security. I think uh, Apple, I'm glad that you mentioned that company. They're kind of the the biggest example I think of when it comes to this because they are so uh, entrenched and, and and reliant on their operations in China for uh, a large part of their success here. Uh, so, and, and that's as a result of, you know, decades of investment. This has been an approach that has not happened overnight. How do you scale that back or even get these companies to make these moves that have been in the works for decades now? Like this has been an approach, as you mentioned, that's been happening since the 1990s or even before that. Where do you begin here? Yeah, that's the major question, isn't it? Um, You know, this kind of renewed interest in questions around reshoring. Um, Listeners may be familiar with the idea of decoupling the idea, the notion that there are certain supply chain capacities that um, countries are going to want within their own borders and are prepared to take steps to try to pull those capacities outside of countries like China. You know, I think a major question going forward is what um, both what policy measures and, and what expectations we place on companies can kind of help to precipitate these changes. Because as you say, there are these um, deep kind of institutional and, and, and operational ties that, 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 that exist. Maybe I'll just, I'll just say this. It would be irresponsible and impractical to try to do this across all aspects of the economy. I think where it's going to have the potential for success, Alicia, is zeroing in on some particular capacities that are um, highly relevant in the area of national security or emergency preparedness. You know, one that uh, listeners will be familiar with is the kind of growing interest on the part of the U.S. government and others when it comes to semiconductors. You know, the fact that so much semiconductor production capacity resides within China um, has both economic and national security implications. And so we're seeing now um, the U.S. government trying to sort of catalyze um, more of of a domestic capacity. So I guess that's just a long way of saying your question is spot on. 
this won't be easy, but I, I, I would just say I, if I was a betting person, um, it would be that, we, well, we won't abandon globalization root and branch. I do think you're going to see a kind of renewal of, of economic nationalism, and that's going to put pressure on firms to identify and commit to um, countries and communities if, if they want to um, build the kind of loyalty, you know, that oftentimes is, is core, to, um, core to their business. Yeah, I think of other uh, industries that in the pandemic, we've noticed the conversation shift towards reshoring things like the production of PPE and and vaccine manufacturing. That's obviously been a big conversation as countries realized they didn't have that at-home production and it left them in a bind, including Canada. But is there a way for companies to strike a balance between that globalization uh that you mentioned, but also committing to home. Uh, is there a way for companies? Can they do both? Yeah, I think they'll have to do both. Um, you know, but it will it will involve an adjustment from what has been the the norm. Um, you know, over the past twenty years or so, where I think a lot of com- companies, you know, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of their R and D was occurring in the United States or Canada or other advanced countries, sort of came to see themselves as globalized firms without any kind of fixed address. I think that will become the source of, of real vulnerability if, if that kind of mindset um, isn't adjusted. You know, there was a, a, a book um, a few years ago, uh, Alicia, that some of your listeners might be familiar with. It was written by a, a British scholar named David Goodhart. The book's called The Road to Somewhere, and he distinguished between somewheres and anywheres. Um, you know, somewheres are people who have deep roots in community. Anywheres are um, um, people that that don't that sort of see themselves as globalized citizens. And I think companies that will succeed going forward are companies that are um, more um, tilted towards being somewheres um, than may have been the case um, over the past uh, twenty or thirty years. And to help facilitate this shift, uh, do we need more partnerships like what we saw at the G7 where the tax policy was announced? You mentioned it earlier. Is that something that we're going to need more of in order to make sure this happens, uh, not just in Canada and the U.S., uh, but as as the rest of the world tries to do the same? Yeah, I, I think the short answer is yes. You know, as long as there's a kind of weak, weak link, the risk is that capital and businesses um, flow to that um, that jurisdiction. So yeah, some of it will involve global cooperation. Some of it, though, is going to involve partnerships between the private sector and the public sector within countries. You know, take Operation Warp Speed, for instance, in the United States, where the U.S. government, in partnership with U.S.-based pharmaceutical companies, were able to um, facilitate the creation of these new vaccines that, um, that of course, have, have been such a key part of our of our COVID response. So I guess um, on one hand, yes, there'll need to be probably more coordinated global action. But uh, on the other hand, I think we'll see a kind of new role for government um, in a post-pandemic world in terms of kind of shaping particular industrial capacities uh, or innovations that are perceived as being in the national interest, um, as opposed to relying on a kind of global supply chain that doesn't have any kind of fixed address on inputs and capacities that have that we have been shown during the pandemic to be kind of truly of national uh, interest and significance. 
so many changes coming as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and really fundamental ones. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for for taking me through this and, and for this conversation. It's always great to be with you, Alicia. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website or on YouTube by subscribing to the Yahoo Finance channel. If you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening.